Hello, and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. I recently met Mark Thompson to talk to him about his new book, The White War. Mark's book is, in the words of The Guardian, a magnificent history of a struggle conducted amid snow, cloud and crag, that of the Italian front in the First World War. Though much less well known than the Western or Eastern fronts, the fighting on the Italian front was every bit as bloody and brutal. Over a million men died in a war of attrition, fought on a terrain even more hostile than the trenches of Flanders. I asked Mark to begin by describing that terrain. The first thing to think about with the Italian front is the steepness of the gradients on which most of the fighting took place. We're used to pictures of the Western Front which generally show fairly level landscapes, sometimes gently rolling, but we're very used, I think, to the vast horizontal landscapes with the Western Front. That's also true of the great pictures which were painted of the Western Front by Nash and so forth. On the Italian Front, the battles took place mostly on very steep slopes, and for part of the front, in the high mountains of, of the Dolomites and the Carnian Alps, up, well, Alps, which were uh, sheer, or, or they were not slopes, they were cliffs. So that's, that's the first thing to remember. The second, really, is the rock, the limestone, where the most intense and bloody engagements took place. This is a very specific landscape, and it stretches really from the very northeastern corner of the Adriatic Sea, right up to the border between Italy and Austria. And this is a what geologists and geographers call a, a karst landscape, where a limestone plateau comes to the surface with a very thin covering of soil and in some places deeply carved by river valleys and uh, this was a very difficult environment in which to conduct warfare as it was then conducted with trenches and frontal offensives and so forth. When you think of Flanders and the Western Front you think about mud and when you think about the Italian front, you need to think of stone and having to build, having to excavate and blast trenches out of solid limestone. You've got a very vivid image in the book for that landscape. You say it, that the Carso was like a vast petrified sponge that could cut you to the bone. And I thought that that really got across the hostility of this terrain, which is just as hostile in its way as the, as the Western Front. Yes, that's quite right. This was a... Uh, terrain which the soldiers came to hate and to see as as an enemy. It, it's still true today, as I know from my own walking on the castle, that if you slip and fall, you cut yourself on the stone. When shells impacted on this limestone, the limestone of the castle, then the fragments of limestone could be quite as deadly as the pieces of shell casing which would burst and shower around. So this was a very difficult environment in which to fight. It was also, of course, waterless. There was no surface water. And water supplies had to be brought in to the soldiers at, at the front lines. Often those water supplies were lacking. And during the summers, which were baking hot and rainless, the, suf the soldiers suffered greatly from thirst. 
And yet there was also mud on the castle, a sort of clay red mud. And soldiers' memoirs and diaries pay a lot of attention to this hateful mud on which the soldiers would slip and slide around during rainstorms. So there was an element of Flanders in that, but the main element was uh, stone. Before the war, Italy had an alliance with Austro-Hungary and Germany, and yet by 1915 they were fighting each other in this terrible war of attrition. Can you say how that came about, how ally turned to foe? Yes. Well, it was one of the strange features of European politics before the First World War that Italy had a long-standing and yet semi-clandestine alliance with, as you say, Germany and Austria-Hungary. This dated back to the 1880s. And the reason why Italy had made an alliance then with its main international enemy, Austria-Hungary, was that it wanted above all to have the military tie to, to Germany. The Italians venerated the Prussian military and they were willing to swallow an alliance with their old enemy, Austria, for the sake of a defensive connection with the Germans. This was never a popular treaty and when the Austrians and Germans decided to punish Serbia in summer 1914, the Italian government wisely declared neutrality. And they said that because Austria's designs on Serbia were aggressive, the terms of its alliance, of Italy's alliance with Austria and Germany, were void. And therefore there was no treaty obligation for the Italians to support Austria and Germany. That's not surprising. More surprising was the fact that the Austrians had not apparently calculated on the Italians not supporting them, or at least not not passively supporting them. The Austrians therefore ended up fighting a war on three fronts for which they had neither the resources nor any strategic plans whatever. They found themselves fighting by spring 1915, the Russians, the uh, Serbians, and and then the Italians. So they were stretched very, very thinly indeed, which is why their defensive feats on the Italian front were so remarkable. In common with many nations, there was a feeling of ebullience when, when war was declared in Italy, and there was talk of being in Vienna by Christmas, so within a matter of a few months. And very quickly, it became evident that that was not going to come to pass, that the same kind of attrition that was found in the Western Front was also beginning to take place uh, in the mountains. That's right. The Italian general staff appeared to learn virtually nothing from the experience on the Western Front, although they did have observers there and although there were reports written about the deadlock on the Western Front, quite remarkably and tragically, the Italian general staff did not draw any strategic conclusions uh, from that deadlock. And they appeared to believe that the conditions on the Western Front were so different from the conditions which, which they faced, and that the Germans on the Western Front were so vastly superior an enemy to the Austrians on the Italian Front, that they would indeed roll over them and they would be 
in Vienna for Christmas. That was a boast made by the deputy commander-in-chief on the Italian front. But as you say, they very rapidly found themselves deadlocked. I mean, very rapidly indeed, because they were having to attack, as I mentioned already, up steep hillsides against well-entrenched and battle-hardened enemy. And so the pattern you get is of repeated assaults and rebuffs so that as you go through the book, there's a battle of Isonza and there's a first battle and then there's a second battle. And every few months is a renewed assault until you get up to a 12th battle and they're still fighting in the same piece of land for, for control of it. And it just, it's, it's, you know, it's attrition to, to the power of 12. That's right. The Italians decided to mimic the Austrians in referring to these serial battles by number. This was a big mistake because this simply served to draw attention to the fact that, as you say, after two and a half years, they were still trying to claw their way up the same hillsides that they had been attacking for two and a half years. And the demoralisation of the Italian troops, who fought valiantly by the autumn of 1917, when, when, when the 12th battle, the famous Battle of Caporetto, began, was considerable. However, the Italian commanders were not interested in trying to improve their soldiers' morale by the sort of means which were already being employed on the Western Front. While they complained incessantly about the insidious effects of pacifist socialist propaganda on the Italian soldiers' morale, they did not try to counter that by boosting the soldiers' morale, for example, in, in obvious kinds of ways, by providing entertainment for them in the rear, or by making sure that turns of leave were punctually provided, or by clarifying to the soldiers the nature and purposes of the war in terms which they could understand. These elementary things were not done, and as a result, when there was a very effective Austro-German attack in October 1917, the Italian Second Army, which was the, the principal Italian force on, on, on the front, rapidly collapsed. You mentioned the absence of those positive things that the, the commanders could have done to motivate the troops. Worse than that, perhaps, were the negative things they did, the very severity of the punishment. And I was struck by that because I knew there were, you know, there were, there were court martials and there were summary executions on the Western Front. But the degree to which those things were taken in the Italian Front was, was remarkable. Yes, indeed. The Italian disciplinary regime was incomparably more savage than those obtaining on the Western Front or indeed in the Dardanelles the Italians executed proportionally far more of their own soldiers than the other armies. And there's plenty of evidence from soldiers' letters and diaries that this had a terrible effect on the men's morale, as it was bound to do. And as one supposes anyone except the Italian commanders would see as an inevitable consequence. How much of the tenor of the way the war, in which the war was conducted by the Italians was set by the commander-in-chief Cadorna because he, he comes out of the book as a, a complex figure who really had a very significant role in, in shaping how war was conducted. He was really all-important for not just the definition of strategy during the first two and a half years of the war, but for the whole tone 
of the Italian military, including the treatment of the troops. He was indeed a very complex character. His father had led the Italian force which occupied or liberated Rome in 1870. He himself was in uniform from a very young age and had no adult experience of civilian life. He regarded the Piedmontese military tradition as the only Italian military tradition, and that was a justifiable point of view. He looked down on Southerners and on politicians and on the Masonic movement, which was powerful among the Italian elite. He had a certain persecution complex, which under the pressures of war sometimes became paranoid. He was immune, really, to any intuition about the men's well-being and about how not just concrete measures, simple concrete measures to improve their well-being, but he failed to understand how the men's well-being could have an effect upon the battles that he was trying to win. So he simply refused to accept that the fact that the men's morale was in a terrible condition could help to explain the results which he was obtaining in the field. You mentioned that the Piedmontese military tradition and contempt for the Southerners, and something which comes out of the book very strongly is that Italy was not a nation state in the same sense that the, the United Kingdom or even France was. I was struck by the fact that many of the soldiers spoke dialects which were mutually incomprehensible, and they had to have sort of translators between them in order to communicate in some kind of lingua franca. And that seems to sort of feed in to bigger questions about the the purpose of the war for the Italians, because there were views expressed that it was a sort of sort of forging of the nation. And by the time the discipline was becoming very harsh, there were presumably worries about the nation actually fracturing under the pressure of conducting this very unpopular war. I wonder if you can say a little bit about, about how the war played into that sort of forming of Italian national consciousness. I'm not sure I can put it better than you just have. Before the war was fought, there was a certain kind of Italian intellectual and political leader who was worried that Italians had still not been formed, to quote a, a, a famous phrase from a Risorgimento leader in back when the Kingdom of Italy was proclaimed, we have now made Italy, but we now have to make Italians. Now, there were doubts around 1900, 1910, that despite its achievements in modernization, which were considerable, the Italian state had still not succeeded in forming Italians. And for some intellectuals, war which was already desirable against Austria in order to extend Italian territory into those areas around the north, east, where there were substantial Italian, ethnic Italian communities under Austrian rule. So war, which was already desirable for expansionist reasons, was additionally desirable because in the furnace of war, a new Italian national consciousness could be forged. And however strange that idea sounds to our ears, it was a deeply held conviction in parts of the Italian elite. And it did help to build up this extraordinary pressure for war, which was mobilised by the interventionist campaign 
around the very end of 1914 and 1915, which in the end prevailed and brought the country to side with the Allies in April 1915. I began by mentioning the, the visual images that come to mind when we talk about the First World War, but the other thing in lots of people's consciousnesses will be the poetry of the war. And I wondered if you could say something about the kind of art which the Italian campaign produced in, in Italian writers. Well, on the one hand, there was a great deal of very belligerent, flowery poetry and also, naturally, prose, commentary, written in the earlier part of the war especially. The most extreme case was the poet Gabriele D'Annunzio, who also joined the army and became a cavalry officer, but and maintained in uniform a flow of very nationalistic and aggressive oratory. And yet, at the same time, a genuinely modern Italian poetry emerged, and it did so, uh, which, and I think this is fascinating, it did so at the very epicentre of the war, on the sector of the Carso front around Mount San Michele. It, it emerged in the jottings of a volunteer private soldier called Giuseppe Ungaretti, who was a good many years older than the average intake. He uh, was trying himself to reclaim his Italian identity because he'd been born to Italian parents living in Egypt. And he was in a, in a sort of quest for his own national identity around the time when the war happened. And he wanted to be part of this great national movement. Concretely, he wanted to be in uniform with the ordinary troops. And when the chance came to become an officer, he flunked it. He didn't want any special privileges. He wanted to be with the ordinary fanti, as they were called. And he had begun to write poetry before the war without any great success. During the war, he started to write this very quiet, very compressed, minimal sort of poetry, really for his own satisfaction as a form of expression under immense pressure. And he would write these notes almost, poems a few lines long, just about an image or uh, something which had caught his eye before a battle or some thoughts he'd had about his own survival during a battle, his thoughts as he lay beside a, a dead comrade near barbed wire, his feeling of desolation on marching through a destroyed village, for example. These he would jot down in quiet moments on any bit of paper that he could find, and he would stuff the paper in a pocket of his uniform. It so happened that he met a magazine editor who recognised his name and asked whether he'd been writing anything recently, and Ungaretti produced these scraps of paper, which the editor then read and was impressed by and turned into a little privately published booklet. And that booklet really stands at the foundation of modern Italian poetry. So that's a story which I've tried to tell in the book and tried also to reflect on the fact that while he was revolutionary in literary terms, 
in his politics, Ungaretti was by no means revolutionary because in, in, in that context, to be re revolutionary would have been to be pacifist. It, it would have been to question the war, the uh, stated purposes of the war, and to be repelled by this great flood of belligerent patriotic rhetoric, which I've mentioned. But Ungaretti did not do these things. He wanted to be in the war. He wanted to... He apparently supported the purposes of the war, which was to extend Italy's boundaries, never mind the cost to the uh, the Slavs and, and Germans, who made up most of the population in most of the areas to which Italy aspired. He hugely admired the ravings of Gabriele D'Annunzio, and after the war he became, for a short and uh, rather un unstable spell, a fascist, a card-carrying fascist. So, hand-in-hand uh, hand with his revolutionary poetics, Ungaretti was a very conventional patriot. You mentioned fascism, that brings me to my last question, because another character whose consciousness was being forged by the war was Benito Mussolini. And I wondered if you could say something about the way in which, after the war, the myth of the war was created and how that fed into the, the wider myths of Italianness that the fascists were able to, to mobilise so successfully. The Italian fascists saw the First World War as a colossal bloodletting in which the Italian nation had rediscovered its true purposes, in which it had performed triumphantly in the end at enormous cost and had recreated itself and burned off the liberal democratic dross which had prevented it before the war from achieving greatness. It was that kind of myth. And accordingly, the uh, Italian fascists used, with some flair and some success, visual commemoration uh, in the form of war memorials and colossal cemeteries to enshrine this myth in stone, using, for the most part, the same stone which had formed the terrain on which the battles had been fought. The, the largest military cemetery in Italy is very near Trieste. It's very near the airport of Trieste. And if you fly in with Ryanair to Trieste Airport, you will see this enormous um, white stone monument extending all the way up, up a hillside, leading from the, the lowlands up to the Carso Plateau. And it is uh, the wow factor is still very impressive with with this cemetery and there are others there are perhaps half a dozen of these very very large ossuaries where the bones of the fallen soldiers are collected it's striking i think that this language of fascist commemoration has not at all been superseded in italy and in fact if today you would you want to get a sense as to the fascist vision of Italian identity, you can't do better than to look at at these cemeteries, which, except for the quarter of Rome, which was designed by the fascists, Eur, is I think the most striking surviving example of fascist aesthetics, and indeed an entire vision of the nation still ready to uh, to sort of rise from the dead and to defend the uh, fascist achievements. I was talking to Mark Thompson, whose book The White War, 
is available in hardback now. Thank you for listening to this download from Faber and Faber. There are many other interviews available on the Faber website, and you can subscribe free to a regular Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber into the search box.